Is is that your guitar back there? It's actually a ukulele. Is it? Yes. Yeah. Do you know? Do you know any songs? I do. It's out of tune, and I can't remember them off by heart. (laughs) Is that is that like your de-stress for work? No, I do. I mean, I write my songs with a friend, but when I'm working them out, we get the ukulele out and figure out the notes. That's the beginning, the first chord of uh, 17 million fuck offs. <laughs> How did that song come about, though? In, you know, did it, was it just something that I was, came from I was the top sat of your head? Right here, I was sat here, and my ukulele teacher was sat in that chair there. You can just see the chair, yeah. put some paper on it. And I, and I was having a lesson, a ukulele lesson. And I said to him, I've got this idea for a song where every time um, somebody said, this is gonna go wrong with Brexit, the English just said, um, fuck off. <laughs> and I had two and a half lyrics and, and we, we, we started figuring it out. And then my ukulele teacher, who is very libertarian, but I can't name him. He goes anonymously because he doesn't want to prejudice his ukulele teaching work. <laughs> <laughs> he said, well, you could do it to the Uncle Tom Cobbley, which is the old Devon folk song, and it would work quite well. And um, we wrote it and it it just happened right here in a ukulele lesson. That's, That's great. Hi, I'm back from sunny Scotland. Uh, sorry you had to deal with Danny for two weeks, but I'm back and welcome to Can I Make a Point? The podcast where we listen to ideas, guests, and on some occasions, even each other. In that spirit, my name is Bradley, and I'm a conservative, and I will be joined every week by my friend Danny, who happens to be a socialist. It's a potent blend, we know. I, I just wanted to jump on at the start of this to say, that I am grateful for all those who have generously given money to the Patreon. And I want to say thanks to Mike Hodson, Mark Wynn, Sarah Worrell, Jill Worrell, Alex Purvis, Alex Doan, and James Hodson. This money allows us to cover our cost, make good content, and allows us to bring more voices to the forefront. If you enjoy the podcast and what we've been doing, please consider supporting us on Patreon. We accept donations from £1 all the way up to £25. These come with benefits such as seeing the podcast a day early, access to the bonus episodes and clips, and you get access to our monthly long read. To find out more, please visit www.theconversationallemon.com and please subscribe to keep up to date with our videos and follow The Conversational Lemon on our social media on Twitter at TC underscore Lemon and on our Instagram at The Conversational Lemon for updates on new content. On today's episode is Dominic Frisby, a musician and comedian and the author of Daylight Robbery, How Tax Shaped Our Past and Will Change Our Future. This is a great book and I really enjoyed this interview. But first, I asked him who he is and what point he wants to make. Well, thank you very much for inviting me on the show. And uh, yeah, I, I have a, a weird sort of double life where I work as a comedian, mainly making comic songs and also as a financial writer. I, I started out as a as a comedian and I used to do lots of voices and then I'd made a bit of money and I started working out how to invest it. And 
there was all these clever people on the internet and I wanted to talk to them. So I started a podcast as a means to talk to them. And one of them offered me a column. <laughs> and this was back in uh, 2006, 2007. And I've always carried on writing the column and then the books have followed, followed from there. And that Benjamin Franklin quote that you used um, every, um, about the inevitability of, of death and taxes, it was actually written by a comedian. <laughs> the first is it was it came from benjamin franklin was a genius by the way and 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 he wrote it in a letter in would have been about 1776 around about then and and also benjamin franklin uh wrote a very funny satirical column which wasn't unlike titania mcgrath what she does yeah. except you know 250 years earlier but it was all about what the english need to do if they want to really piss off the Americans, but she, the way he, um, and, he, and he basically listed out all the things that the English should do. And it was all things they were doing anyway. And it was exactly the same angle that Titania McGrath takes, if you've seen her. But anyway, the original line, or the first time we can find the line in print, print is, is in a farce called The Cobbler of Preston uh, from 1716. And its author was Christopher Bullock. And the line is, Tis impossible to be sure of anything but death and taxes. So, so maybe there were other comedian stroke financial writers in the 18th century. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I watched your interview with, uh, I think it was the Trigonometry guys. Oh, they, yeah. They mentioned your book. And then James Dellingpole also in a video of his brother mentioned. So I thought I'd pick it up. And I read the title and I went, mm, I don't know if this is for me. I was wondering how being, whether or not, because you're a comedian, obviously this came from like a Edinburgh Fringe Festival. I was wondering if that made writing the book more readable for people because you were a comedian, so you had to not make it so conv convoluted. Yeah, 100%. And it's that same thing of the discipline of clarity. And I was conscious when I was writing it, you know, tax is about the most boring subject in the world. But as I argue in the book, <laughs> it's probably the most important subject in the world because it's how you design a society. And, um, you know, it, tax should be taught as a subject in itself, in my view. At the moment, it's a sort of subset of economics and economics isn't widely taught, but, you know, tax should be taught along with history and maths and, and so on, it's that important. Mm. Um, but, the, the, but I am conscious that, you know, people associate taxation with doing their tax returns at the end of the year, which is a boring job, which costs you money. I mean, who, who enjoys it? So. I, I was I did make an effort to make it as entertaining as possible. But then on the other hand, there are so many fantastic and wonderful tax stories from history that they almost write themselves. So it was a bit of both. Yeah, and the, the book I was wondering if obviously you explain the what why you chose to title Daylight Robbery, but for not, for anyone that's not read it, where do, just if you give the overview of where that where that phrase comes from? Sure. It it's not a hundred percent this but it's thought that the expression daylight robbery which basically means brazen theft dates back to the window tax which was introduced in 1696 i think shortly after the glorious revolution in order to fund uh, william's wars overseas wars william of william of orange um and the 
the tax worked quite well at first and that it raised a lot of money. But then what people started doing is they started blocking up their windows to in, in order not to pay the tax. And landlords, the tax fell on landlords, so they would build the tenement apartments, tenement blocks with no windows at all. This was in the days before um, electric lighting or even gas and oil lamps. People use candles and rush lights to light their rooms. So to lose their daylight and fresh air was no small sacrifice. And it's not even thought, it's known that the damped, cramped, windowless dwellings actually in, in the Industrial Revolution made the outbreaks of cholera and typhus <coughs> excuse me and all the various diseases much worse I, when i sneeze it tends to come in threes for some reason so there's probably yeah. two more sneezes <laughs> but yeah and so the tax had the unintended consequence of making people ill but yes so because people blocked up their windows in order to avoid paying the tax they were robbed of their daylight effectively and mm -hmm. when the matter was eventually debated in parliament and Parliament was so slow to get rid of the tax. When they eventually did get rid of it, and it was debated in Parliament, it, the room, the story is that the MPs all cried daylight robbery. There is another theory on that phrase uh, that it has something to do with highwaymen, the highwaymen of old and, and robbing at daylight then. But, you know, it's disputed. And the first time the, the, the phrase actually appeared in print was in a, um, a play called Hobson's Choice. Uh, by Harold Briggs House, which I think was written in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Famous play, it was turned into a film, very good film with Charles Lawton. But the um, one of the guy goes, you can't do that, it's daylight robbery. And in that context, it meant just, you know, brazen theft, outrageous theft. Mm. But, yeah. but it's a good story that it goes back to the window tax. And yeah. so that's why I called the book that. Yeah, no, it's... Um... And I suppose a lot there's parts of the book that are very much grounded in that sort of history of taxation and sort of like where it comes from. And also in the book, you advocate either lower taxes or getting rid of taxes. And I'm wondering where does your preference for um, a, ta a sort of a thinned out taxation system come from? Well, in my um, political philosophy, uh, I'm a believer in, I mean, I, I, I sort of fluctuate a little bit, but when the wind's blowing, if I start going to Bitcoin conferences, I'm very much a, what you'd call an anarcho-capitalist, an anarchist. I believe in as little government as possible. And an anarchy is the most free society there is. And in an anarchy, there is zero taxation. I've never understood a lot of these socialist campaigners who call themselves anarchists, and yet they're arguing for more government more yeah. NHS, more education, whatever it is, because that means more taxes and less freedom. <laughs> so either you're an anarchist or you're not. But if you're an anarchist, you believe in zero taxes and, um, and or taxes should be voluntary. And so I waver somewhere between there and the old sort of classical liberal, the Gladstonian liberal, which would be about 10 to 15% of GDP is taxation. But at the moment we're at about 50%. Um, so, and if you look back at history, the most enlightened societies, the most successful societies, the most innovative, the most inventive, they've always been the freest. Um, you know, where people are free to question new ideas and explore new ideas without fear of censorship. And by the way, by the way, the word censor is linked 
subject to taxation. Mm. The censor was the old Roman magistrate who was responsible for free speech and the collecting of taxes. The two are related. But yes, and I regard taxation as a measure of freedom. Uh, the less taxed you are, the more free you are. Margaret Thatcher famously said, you cannot have freedom without economic freedom. And this idea that somehow you can have a free society when people have, have to pay 70% of their earnings in tax, that's not free. It's the very opposite of free. Um, and so, you know, free speech, free movement, free minds, free choice, all these things are linked to low taxes. The other problem why I so that's one reason I argue for low taxes they result in a it, it, they result in more freedom and a better outcome for people generally and then the other people will counter that and they'll say yeah but if you don't have taxes you wouldn't have the NHS and you wouldn't have education well I don't believe that government is the best I don't believe that if you want the best possible health care for the most possible people at the lowest possible price and similarly, you want the best possible education for the most possible people at the lowest possible price. Government is the best means to achieve that. I just don't think it is. I think government is the means to achieve a second rate system of health and education at the highest possible price. <laughs> and, and so, you know, and, and then when it comes to education, I just think it's the fact that government is setting the curriculum is in itself there's something very questionable about that. What, why should the government decide what, she, what you learn and what you don't learn? So that's all by the by. So, so that's why I believe in lower taxes. The other problem we have with taxation in this country today, and this, the UK is the worst offender in the world, is, is just the sheer enormity, the sheer size of the tax code. We have the longest tax code in the world. Um, it's 21,000 pages, I think. If, I think I've got that statistic right. I'd need to check it and it's some I, I've, it's it's the equivalent of 14 times the number of words there are in the bible 14 times and it's more the uk tax code is more words than most people will read in their entire lifetime and so i just don't believe there is any single person that has read the entire tax code and yet that determines the entire economy of our country, the entire shape of our country, because tax is power. You know, if a if people lose, if a governor or a king or an emperor or government loses its tax revenue, it loses its power. Tax is how you shape a society. And we've got this ridiculously complicated code. And you look at somewhere like Hong Kong, which was the economic success story of the second half of the 20th century. It went from having a GDP per capita at the end of World War II that was on a par with most of Africa to having a GDP per capita that was the highest in the world in about 50 years, 50 or 60 years. It was an extraordinary success story and it was built on taxation never exceeding 14% um, uh, of GDP. So it was on a par with the old uh, tithe, you know, which was 10% of GDP. The tithe was the 10th. Um, and they thought it was the 10th because we have 10 fingers on our hands. It, Hong Kong was this ex extraordinary economic success story. It's got problems now, but at the time it was extraordinary and it was built on low taxes and individual freedom. The irony of Hong Kong is that it wasn't a democracy. It was a mm. colony, but it happened to have a benevolent dictator in the form of, of, J uh, of Cooperthwaite who was the uh, financial controller.
you mentioned there about like Hong Kong. I mean, I'm of the same position view. I read your when I got to the end of you building Utopia, Utopia, I found myself going, here's common sense tax most. But do you think there's a failure on the right specifically to make that case then? Because as you point out, George Osborne made the actually came in office saying, I'll simplify the tax code. It actually got more complex when he was in, in office. Do you see there's a failure of the right to make the case for that low simplified taxation? Total failure. And George Osborne was a big advocate of flat tax when he was in opposition. Mm. And I, I wonder whatever happened to that. <laughs> um, the, like, you know, I mean, I, I put the boot into Corbyn there. I equally put the boot into the Conservative Party. Both the Conservative Party and the Labour Party have allowed themselves to be owned by this technocratic social democrat middle, the Blairite middle. Mm. And, you know, the Conservative Party is not a... You know, they're supposed to believe believe in low state individual responsibility, low taxes and less state. And you just look at what they're doing now and every at every big choice they've had to make since since Boris Johnson was elected. They've chosen the more more government route, the more state option. They're just a, a social democrat party, but by a different name. And, you know, the the. And, and you've, there's quite a few sort of, you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg and others and Rishi Sunak's a product of the IEA and they're all in government. And yet it gets bigger and more bloated and more complicated. And the reason the UK tax code is so complicated is all the subsidies and, and all the different levels at which different groups are taxed at. And but particularly the subsidies and the grants and the and the tax breaks and so on. And like you just look at all the different schemes that Rishi Sunak has come up with this year uh, to help people out with COVID. And it's just made the whole thing even more bloated and complicated than it was before. And so, you know, the right of the Conservative Party, they were good over Brexit, in my opinion, the Spartans and all of that. But I don't know, I, don't, I just wish I understood what happened. I, the only explanation I can come up with is, is yes, minister. Everything's like it is in Yes Minister. <laughs> you get these ideologically, in my view, sound people. And then as soon as they go, go into government, it's just the same old stuff, just with different people acting out the script. And so, yeah, the right of the Conservative Party has totally failed, as badly as the left has. You've, you've just summed up what I've been complaining about to Danny for like, I'm a Tory party <laughs> member, but I'm like about to go out the door because I very much put myself on the right of the... I used to agree with Jacob Rees-Mogg on a lot of stuff, including the social stuff. But at the moment, like you say, they've all just jumped off the cliff into kind of like, I'll just accept government's the answer to everything. I, I went to listen to Boris Johnson to do a talk. Um, I think it was with the Telegraph thing um, a couple of years ago before he was, I think it was after he'd stood down as chancellor, but before he'd, before there was the leadership challenge on Theresa May. And um I managed to ask him a question and it was in the, not the Wigmore Hall, it was at that big hall opposite Westminster, uh, opposite um, uh, House of Parliament, I forget what it's called. And the, I was able to ask him a question and I said to him, what the Tory party does and what the Tory MPs stand for is so divorced from what the Tory membership actually wants. Mm. And, you know, because at the time most, of the Conservatives were trying to undermine Brexit and that went totally against what their membership wanted. 
how are you going to how is the conservative party get going to get back in touch with its membership and actually represent the views of its membership and i just got the most and the the room clapped when i said that and then i got we got the most waffly answer from boris johnson going yeah well if you look at kids it turns out kids are really libertarian and uh, you know we need to get with the kids and and but he took about five minutes to say that and I'm not even entirely sure kids are that libertarian, but there is an essentially libertarian yeah. view among certain kids because you see it like man in crypto. You know, a lot of very libertarian-minded kids have gone into cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, and mm -hmm. gone into that world, which is about as libertarian as it gets. But in any case, I, I, I've looked back at that and I wish I'd grabbed the microphone back and gone, Boris, you are waffling. That is absolute nonsense. Get with the kids. How is that a legitimate answer? Is that how you're going to get the Conservative Party is going to represent the views of its members? Mm. But this sort of contemptuous, intellectually vacuous answer that he gave to that question shows, you know, how divorced the Conservative Party is from its members and why it has no intention of actually representing the views of its members, which is a mm. gross betrayal on my part. And the members are sort of they have this thing either you can have power but if we have power it has to be you know we have to be another tony blair or we don't have power and i just don't believe the choice is that black and white mm. but you know it, we need a strong person who can you know be another margaret thatcher basically and stand up to all the shit but but you know you, you hoped that boris might be that person but he clearly isn't yeah and do you not think that's a like a problem with politics in general the massive disconnect the massive disconnect between the people who are elected to parliament um, who engage in, you know, managerialism at the, you know, at the highest level and rebuttress all of these old ideas, which are clearly not working. Um, and the people who clearly, you know, for, for better or for worse, want something totally different, but can't get it because the, there's nothing on offer to present that. Yeah, uh, totally. And I mean, there are a few sort of renegade MPs who will, who have got balls and they say what they think. But when they do, if you just if you just stray from the from the ordinary and the bland, even slightly, the media just absolutely crucify you. Mm. And so most politicians end up not doing that. Mm. And just to go. And back. also a lot of the times they get into government, they get positions in the cabinet or something, and then they, they can't be mavericks anymore mm. because they're under orders not to. Yeah. No, and just just to go, just to bring it back to the issue of Taxation in the book, you describe the the ancient Greek system, like obviously being a voluntary tax and stuff like that. I was just wondering whether or not, do you think that would work today? Could we and could we go go down that path of a voluntary taxation system? Well, it's kind of idealistic, um, but in principle, yes, I do think it could work today. The the practical realities of wholesale reform to our tax system and going to a voluntary system of taxation are very hard but if you if a government turned around to the people you know i think people are instinctively very charitable they want to help if you government turned around and said we are no longer providing building schools we're no longer building um hospitals we're no longer building roads you have to do the, these things are falling to the people to do but on the other hand, we're not taxing you anymore. So you're all gonna be twice as rich. Um, 
the charitable instinct in a lot of people would be to give some of their newfound wealth to help all these essential causes. And there would be lots of entrepreneurs who set up businesses to provide these services to people. Um, and then there would be competition between these entrepreneurs, which would improve productivity and drive down costs. Um, and it's not just that people would be wealthier and so they would be more able to afford these things. They would have a responsibility. Because at the moment, when you pay your taxes, you have this attitude, well, I've paid my tax. Uh, I've done my bit. It's up to government to sort it out. Whereas if you haven't paid your tax, you've got the money yourself. You have a responsibility to help your fellow man. You have a responsibility to help the weakest members of your family, to help the weakest members of your community and so on, because nobody else is doing it for you. And so it's a combination of empowering people by leaving them to own their own labor and the products of their own labor and burdening them with greater human responsibility as well. And so, yes, I do think it could work. And in case your, your listeners are just wondering what the ancient Greek tax system was, is that in, in ancient Athens, tax, many taxes were voluntary and it was expected that the richest people in society would pay these taxes, but it wasn't obligatory. And not only if, so say the city needed a new bridge or a new road or a new warship or some games put on or some, a theatre show, whatever it was, it, the responsibility would fall to the rich. And it was believed they should shoulder the responsibility because they enjoyed a greater share of the community's wealth. But not only did the rich have to pay for it, they had to carry out the work themselves. And so their name would be on it. And as a result, both when they were carrying out the work, their wallet was on the line and their reputation was on the line. So the result was that the work tended to be carried out to a much higher standard um, than if some bureaucrat with no skin in the game was carrying it out. Hmm. And it worked very well, but unfortunately the Peloponnesian War put an end to uh, the liturgy, the litur liturgical system in ancient Athens. I think against your better nature, um, I, I was wondering if you could give me the case for taxes at all. I was wondering if, wondering if, if you thought there was anything good about taxes. Yeah, there is. Um, you know, I might be Mr. Anarcho-capitalist and I want an anarchy and I want zero taxes, but the evidence of history is that there has never been a civilization without taxation. Um, there have been a couple of examples of voluntary taxation, but in most cases, taxation isn't even voluntary. So taxation, you know, going back to the original quote that we began this interview with, taxation of some kind is inevitable. But there are good taxes and there are bad taxes, in my opinion, and there are good levels of taxation and there are bad levels of taxation. Um, the, at the moment, we wonder why the poor are so, it's so hard for young people, there's this huge gap, wealth gap between generations, and why it's so hard for young people to, to make their way in the world. Well, there are two reasons for that in my view. The first is that we tax labour 
constantly and heavily. And when you're a young person starting out with nothing, all you have is your labor. But by the, it, 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 you, you end up paying roughly 40, 45, 50% of everything you ever earn is taken from you in taxes. So on one side, your labor is taxed very heavily. At the same time, the money you are paid in for your labor rapidly loses its value. So you expend this much energy, this much labor to achieve a con a re in return a certain amount of energy in the form of money, which you can then spend at a later date. But the value of the energy that is your money is eroded every year by inflation, money printing, quantitative easing, zero interest rates, all the other means by which governments debase currency. And so the value of your labor is going down. So not only are you taxed in your labor, the product of your labor loses its purchasing power. Meanwhile, as a result of this inflation, the things you want to buy with your labor, such as a house or an education or whatever it is, are getting increasingly expensive every year. And the net effect of, because asset prices are pushed up, the more money you print, if you suppress um, interest rates and you make the cost of earning debt very little, anything that requires debt to buy, such as a house, is going to go up in value. It's inevitable. So that on and they are not taxed. Assets go untaxed. So the old, whose wealth mostly lies in the form of assets, their assets get richer. And so there's two things, income tax and inflation. And income, inflation is a form of taxation. Milton Friedman called it taxation without legislation. And so the combination of those two things is what has made the wealth gap so bad. So that is a bad form of taxation, in my opinion. Um, you know, 40, 45% income tax. Why is income tax not 10 or 15%? Until 1942, um, ordinary Americans didn't pay income tax. It was only the richest. In the second half of the 20th century, the ordinary Hong Kong citizen did not pay any income tax. It was only the very richest. Why should you not, why should your labor be owned? Why should you not be able to own your own labor? And the left cannot distinguish between income and capital. When they argue about um, higher taxes, they always say income tax should be high. Why? Because the, the, they, the, the wealthiest people in society have not got wealthy as mm. a result of their labor. Yeah. They've got wealthy as a result in the appreciation in the value of their assets. Yeah. And, and the, 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 the left cannot distinguish between the two. Definitely. And, I mean, this know, is the appreciation in the value of their houses, their land, their companies, their, their yeah. fine art, all that stuff. It's all untaxed. Yeah. So when you're taxing one group, and you're not taxing another. The inevitable result is inequality. Yeah. Now, no, I mean, this is something that I've argued for in a lot of my blogs, which is that the left needs to get a bit smarter on who it's taxing rather than, the, you know, just arguing for a wholesale expansion of the tax system, because I don't think that's necessarily strategically smart. And I don't think it works that way either. It's got to be about assets and wealth. And as you say, capital sure. rather than income, because because if you look at wealthy people, you know, they're making their money through um, through, like you say, ownership of certain assets, i.e. houses and those kinds of things, but also um stock trading and things like um you know owning companies and stuff so it's it has to be about something more than income it's only middle class and working class people that earn it through income 
Yeah, you could put income tax up to 70% in the United States. Donald Trump will still only pay $600 of taxes. Mm. And while you're taxing workers and Donald Trump's only paying $600 of taxes and, and Donald Ta Trump is, is what he did was totally legal. But assets go untaxed and labor goes taxed. And that's not me arguing for the taxation of assets, by the way. So let me tell you what the solution to all of this is. The first thing is you do not tax labor or you tax it very low levels, 10 percent, 15 percent. Nobody made the land. The land was always there. Nature gave it to us. If you build, if you own a plot of land and it doubles in value and you haven't done anything to that land, it's just because more people want it. You haven't worked to increase that, the value of that thing. You haven't improved that land in any way. You haven't built a factory on it or built a farm on it or built a house on it. So the land was always there. And this idea dates back to a group of philosophers called the physio physiocrats in the in the Enlightenment. And they believed in that the wealth that nature gave us should. And this is a very socialist idea, by the way, so it should appeal to you. The wealth <laughs> that nature, gave us, the wealth that nature gave us should be everyone's to share the wealth that is as a, as a result of your own endeavor should be yours to keep. So if you take a plot of land, the land itself belongs to everyone. But if you build a house on that land and it's a beautiful house and it's got fantastic features and, and it's whatever, the house should be yours. So you need to distinguish between the value of the land and what's on it. Mm. It's called the unimproved rental value of the land. And Henry George was a, an American economist from the late 1800s. And he devised this idea of the single tax, the only tax you pay, it replaces all other taxes. The only tax you pay is a tax. If you want a plot of land and you want that land to be yours, and you want exclusive access to that land, and nobody else is allowed to go on it, and you want the police to protect your property rights, then you pay a rent to the community, to everyone, that gives you exclusive access to that land. And the rent is based on the unimproved rental value of the land. So if you want a plot of land that's in a city centre, you know, the plot of land that Harrods is on or something, then the rent would be very high because, every, you know, that's the most desirable real estate in the country. But if it's just some bit of farmland or something in, in, in the countryside somewhere, it's going to have no rental value. So the, the land you pay with very low and you look at somebody like the, the the a lot of the land in the uk is still owned by the same people it was owned by when after william the conqueror handed it out in 1066 <laughs> and and the biggest landowner of the lot being the queen she owns i think it's i can't remember how much of the uk and the land just sits there and she's the custodian of the land and all the rest of it well whatever you know it sits there and nobody else is able to use it. Um, I think it's 70% of all the land in the UK is owned by fewer than 6,000 people, a few, mm. the Crown, a few large institutions, some rich aristocrats. We need to tax land and not labour. And that is the solution. And 
the beauty of this tax is if you own a plot of land, everyone, this is a transparent tax that everyone can see. And if you think, you know, you decide that all land is taxed at 5% or 10%, whatever, and everyone goes, that's too much. The, the rate is too high, then government will have to tighten its belt and restrict its spending because that is the only tax we have. If um, it can't, government can't do all the stealth taxes that it does. It can't persecute one group because this is the only tax we have. On the other hand, if people attack, if the levels are too low and government needs more, it can say, well, we, we need more. And so land value tax is a very good way of keeping the, the power balance between government and people in check. Because at the moment, government has too much power. People don't have enough. But that, so through a land value tax, it's not it. And, and it also solves the problem if you take something like Google or Facebook, which one of these technology companies that pays very little tax in the UK, all because we don't make any money, all because our intellectual property is in, in Holland and we're, we're renting the intellectual property and Holland has zero corporation, whatever it is. If you've got Facebook, if you've got offices in, in, you know, Google's got those big offices in King's Cross or Facebook's got those big offices in Soho or it's got its servers somewhere and it uses a lot of land because of its servers that run its computer system. Fine. You don't pay any corporation tax. You pay tax based on the value of the land that you're using to run your business. And so it solves the whole thing. And everyone knows who, who owns that plot of land. Um, you can't evade this tax, you can't avoid it. And it's the same level of tax for everyone. It's like a consumption tax. Rather than being taxed on how hard you work, you get taxed on how much you use. If you want a lot of land, then you pay a lot of tax. If you only want a little bit of land, then fine, you don't pay a lot of tax. It's just the fairest way, it keeps everything quite naturally in balance. It won't happen in this country because everyone's obsessed with the value of their house. And they all think because they've got a house that's gone up a lot of in value, they're going to be, have to pay a fortune in tax on it. But let's just take the example of a, a house. I know people that bought a house in, in London in 1995. They've lived in that house since 1995. The house is worth 10 times what it's worth was worth in 1995. They've not done anything to that house. They've not improved it. They've not decorated it. They've not put a new roof. So how can that house be worth 10 times more? Oh, they've built a new... Um, station up the road and they improve the, the line. Well, why should you get loads of money because the taxpayer built a new line at the end of your road? You get the benefit of that thing because the, you've got the new station with the fast route into London at the end of your road. Why should you also benefit from the improved house price as well? Well, again, the rental value of that land would increase as a result of the public spending on the new station. And so the increased value that you enjoy from the appreciation of your house that's got nothing to do with your own endeavor is shared communally it's a it's a so that's in my opinion to answer your question what a good tax would be yeah and i was, I was just wondering on that like obviously you advocate and this is area where you and danny agree on abolishing council tax and like, mm. I'm with you, but the there might be some that are watching this will ask, what about the issue of social housing then? Because obviously we have a housing crisis in Britain at the moment, not enough houses. I think it's, I think it's like you say, because we're not using enough of land and you've got too many, what I call eco warriors that are not thinking rationally about when houses are being built and stuff. But how would that work with people that, for example, are maybe working, living in council housing? Like what, what would the tax system 
be there? Are they still being taxed for the how uh, for the land they're living on? Well, the 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 reason for ridiculous house prices in this country, everyone says, oh, it's because we're not building enough. That's not the cause of it. In 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 between 1997 and, and 2007, the um, we built 10% more housing. The population grew by 5%. So there were more houses than there were people, and yet house prices tripled. The reason that house prices keep growing up is the expansion of the money supply, because the, the money supply tripled uh, over that period, and so did house prices. So expensive house prices is a, co is a consequence of our system of fiat money. It's, it's not to do with low building. If we build more, that in theory should bring house prices down, but it won't. It, they're built on inflated money. And, and it's a consequence of government action. So if you think the government has got the solution to the house price, cri the house price crisis, please don't give me that. And you just look mm -hmm. at government's involvement in, in social housing. It is brutal. Look at those awful estates that were built. Ugly, ugly, ugly. All that waste pulled down 30 or 40 years later. Or they've got crappy cladding. Or they, they're just these most that become sink estates. You know, the terraced houses that were built by the Victorians in the 1900s, very cheaply, utterly beautiful. Here they are 125 years later. Wonderful communities. And, and they pulled down terraced housing to build council houses, which have just turned into sink estates. Social housing is not the answer. Social housing is grim. And so if you want to fix the housing problem, we need to fix the money system. I mean, like we mentioned in the beginning that me and Danny had watched the 17 million ethos, which was one of, is one of my favorite, favorite video songs. But That's recently, hilarious. Recently, last year or not, you've admitted to the internet for your love for Nigel Farage. And I was wondering how that's going at the moment and what you make of his <laughs> whole, like he's getting into the finance market now about giving people more. Yeah. And stuff. I was wondering what, how your relationship there is going with that and stuff. Well, I'm, I'm, I remain a huge fan. Um, I mean, he's obviously doing it. He's doing it for two reasons. One is he thinks that, that the services, his newsletter and so on will give people valuable advice. Um, and, and it might well do. He's got 20 years experience. He was a metals trader and a pretty good one, I gather. He's, he obviously needs the money as well. I don't, you know, people think he's a rich man. I, I, you know, he's not rich like Aaron Banks or, or you know, he, he hasn't, he's not like David Cameron who gets offered a, um, mm. not David, David Miliband who gets offered a cushy job in whichever charity he works for. He's not like George Osborne who's been given, an, you know, the editorship of the Evening Standard and the, um, and all those jobs working for banks that he gets as an as a advisor. Um, Farage doesn't have that kind of income, so he, he needs an income. Every time he does get a job, the left just makes sure he gets no platformed, you know, <laughs> like they did with LBC. So, uh, you know, I, I sympathise with what he's doing and I understand it. And if he's delivering a good service and he makes the people who subscribe to his newsletter money, then good for him. Um, I, I had lunch with him late last year and he wrote an article railing against cycling. I don't know if you saw that. And uh, it was as a result of that lunch with me because I, I enjoy cycling and I was saying to him, I go cycling near where he lives. And it turned out he hates all the cyclists on his road. On <laughs> and so he, that was very and, underhand. And he sent me a text the other day saying, write more songs and cycle less. So, uh, <laughs> so um, but you know, so, 
and he but he did say one of the things he said and i don't think i'm betraying him is he says i go quiet for periods and think people think i've you know i stay out of the political limelight for a bit and i go quiet and people think it's because i'm not doing anything while i'm doing stuff um i'm just so i think he's you know, if you look at the impact he's had on British politics, it's been amazing. And it's all been from without ever having a seat, all been in opposition. And um, I think he's got more tricks up his sleeve and I think he's a, a great man and don't underestimate him. Oh my God, I've never seen anyone smeared as much as Nigel Farage. Yeah. I mean, how much mm. do you have to be smeared? And um, yet, and it's horrible, that process. And they've tried to excommunicate him and do everything, and he's just come out the other side. And he's and so I, I have I have great admiration for him. I mean, yeah. I, I always find that interesting because, like, you, many on the left will you mentioned about smearing will mention Jeremy Corbyn, but I think you it's fair enough to say I, I would go on a limb to say Nigel Farage is probably smeared by the the media more than more than Jeremy Corbyn because in many ways, yeah, the media doesn't like him, but. It's literally, I don't think you could find a newspaper in the country that has always been backing Nigel Farage, but Jeremy Corbyn has had The Guardian's backing for like 30, 40 years. And so I do think that's an interesting I thought thing. The Guardian turned against Corbyn. It, it did in the end. It did eventually in the end because people were just, like I think people like Owen Jones suddenly realised, well, this is going a bit, he's rewriting his history of saying, well, he was never supportive of Corbyn. But You're kidding. It, no, he's written a book called This Land, where he he basically it was like the other day. Did you see on Twitter Femi, you know, the anti-Brexit yeah. warrior, who basically said, "Oh, I've never liked the EU after <laughs> the vaccine round." And I'm like, "Are you joking? You've spent four years campaigning against this. <laughs> you oh you know, you, you've pissed off a lot of people in the process, and now you're saying you never liked the EU anyway. You know, it's ridiculous." Yeah. But, Owen Jones is doing a similar thing where he's he's basically disattaching himself because a lot of these people attach themselves to the political project that was Corbynism and now they're having to disattach it because it was such an well it was it was a failure you know it's the worst result since 1935. Mm. So, yeah. yeah, I wonder. Well, um, there's no doubt. Um, I mean, Corbyn was smeared and he was straw manned, but he also was a he was a very disorganized and uh you know he allowed a lot of that stuff to happen um you know a lot of the it's it's you know the, the center all that technocratic middle are much better at organizing the media and making themselves less impervious to criticism than the you know whether it's you know the brexit party uh ukip turned into a bit of a shit show of disorganization by the end of it and the labor party followed a similar path and you know, when they get attacked, it's it's hard to resolve. So, but I, I do have a lot of sympathy and, and that, you know, I, I come back to that thing. They never gave voice that the, 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 the Brexit left was never given a proper voice, yeah. but it was its own fault because Corbyn should have been the voice of that. that. That Benite left never had a proper platform. There was a few George Galloway and, um, What's her name? The MP from Vauxhall. What's her name? Kate, uh, Kate Hoey. There was a couple, but they never got the airwaves. And, and you know, if Corbyn had owned that a bit more, then, then maybe it could have had uh, uh, yeah. more of a voice. But there's no doubt he, he did get smeared, but he didn't. You look at Farage, he's so brilliantly articulate. And when he had a debate, he was articulate and he and he dealt with it and he 
And so even though he was smeared, the rest of the country could see what he actually said. And Corbyn never had the same articulacy as Farage. And so it was easier to straw man him. Yeah, I think I think that lack of charisma that Corbyn, you know, he, he never seemed to have that. And I think Farage has that in abundance, actually. I think that's part of what makes him so successful is, like you say, he's articulate and he's charismatic. But I think the other thing that, that Farage has that maybe Corbyn, um, that maybe Corbyn lacks is a sense of real conviction in what they're doing. Um, I think Farage, he, you know, he's been campaigning against Brexit for about 25 years, against yeah. um, the EU for about 25 years now, you know, and, and every single time he's been knocked back, he's always come back and carried on arguing it. But you got the sense with Corbyn that after 2017, when it all went so well, even though it was a loss, um, you know, it, so, it started to sort of fall away and they started to yeah. sort of try and make concessions on certain things to, and the conviction sort of ended, you know. Yeah, and... I think one of the reasons for that absence of conviction was the fact that he didn't was the lack was the fact that he didn't have the conviction. Mm. If that if that makes sense, if if Definitely. he come out against Brexit, for example, he would have had that conviction, and he could have convinced a lot of young people that actually voting for Brexit isn't evil. Mm. <laughs> All those idiots <laughs> in the media. Hardly <laughs> wishes he did. Because, like, I can tell you, Vini, my first so Danny wasn't old enough to vote, but the first time I could vote was on Brexit and when people were like discussing it, I was there going, well, actually, I think leaving the European Union might be a good thing, actually. I think like having- Shock a- horror. <laughs> and the government around me was like, whoa, what's going on here? Because you know, I was 18 at the time trying to make the case for Brexit. And it's been that, I was wondering what you did make of like the kind of post-Brexit world and stuff, like what you've made of kind of like, like we mentioned before, the turnaround of people now saying they're not, not we were always Brexiteers. <laughs> and like Tony Blair, for example, coming out on Sophie Ridge and saying that the EU messed up. Well, I'm wondering what you made of like the changing perceptions of the EU after we've left. Well, those who have voted Remain and couldn't accept the result were determined at all costs for Brexit not to work. First, they tried to undermine it. And then after they failed to undermine it, they were determined, you know, they first they tried to stop it happening. And then when, once that failed, they were determined for it to end badly so that they could be proved right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had people I play football with, good friends trolling me on Twitter. I had to block somebody who I was a friend with on playing football. I had to block him on Twitter because he kept trolling me about it. And so I, um, but I've noticed since the, the first, since this business of the vaccines and the fact that we got the vaccine rollout quicker and then the, 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 them trying to impose the border on Northern Ireland and all of that. So first they revealed the true colours of the EU mm. by you know, trying to impose the border. And then they revealed the true colours of Brexit by admitting that the UK is like a speedboat and the EU is like a speedboat, <laughs> was. They've just gone quiet. And I, you know, and now the pound, now we're finally out, the pound's starting to rally, markets are doing well. Um, the, there are still, all the problems have been stuff imposed by the EU on us. Uh, uh, and, and it's a sulky, recalcitrant EU that doesn't want Brexit to work. Mm. Um, but my li- remainder friends have just gone quiet. Uh, mm. But as soon as, as soon as like all the WhatsApp chat groups, as soon as something bad to do with Brexit happens, they'll all be on there saying what a shit show of an <laughs> idea it was. Mm. <laughs> so this is a bit of a, 
a cheeky question, but we might, we might get a little bit of a scoop. Are you, do you plan on standing for reform when they uh, when they stand for council elections or members of parliament? No, um, I'm not going to. Uh, they haven't asked me, and um, like I stood for the Brexit party, but like I, I probably of all the things I've ever done in my life, that's like the most known thing I've ever done. It's what all the mm. people remember, and I literally all it was was I sent in a couple of emails and went for an interview it was like, <laughs> it just required no effort it's, it also everyone seems to remember and like people were, i took so much shit for it people i remember i was in edinburgh during the festival and people wrote ukip cunt all over my posters and stuff like that and my daughter saw who was you know young at the time and i was like and she was like what's that why are they written that daddy and i was like oh my god and that was it's nasty know, isn't it so horrible oh my god it's pathetic and, yeah and and you know the comedy industry is full of idiot remainers anyway and um and and I, I, I so i don't have the resources to allocate to it at the moment mm. um I, i'm i'm not even sure i, I mean I, i'll see when it comes to it but I, I quite admire what lawrence fox is doing and um so you know it might be that i end up voting for him as mayor of london is he going to stand for mayor of london i heard of something like that i'm not, not sure if he is or not but his party's been registered like he's an official party now, which means he may get my membership soon when he releases a manifesto, because I'm looking. Yeah. But I think he's standing in elections. I don't know if he's standing in the, the mayor elections. I wish someone would, because the right-wing Sean Bailey isn't. He's just a disaster. He's not. Yeah, he's not tapping with people. I'm, I'm quite sorry about that, but yeah, he's not, he's not working. I remember when he first emerged in the political scene about 20 years ago, everyone had high hopes for him, but... Hmm. Yeah. And so just bringing it... Looks like London will remain Sadiq Khan's fiefdom for the foreseeable future. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. But, so just bringing it full round now, because what I thought was interesting is I read your book, and I, I said this in my Goodreads view, because what interests me is I've read a lot of books where they'll criticise what's going wrong. They'll say, here's what's wrong. What made me interested is you did a whole chapter on proposing a utopia. Mm. And one of, the th one of the things I've been thinking about a lot is, and me and Danny have had this question, of where I stand on public services. Because obviously it's very difficult when you're on the right and you, the, the, the general assumption is, well, you want, to, you want to privatize absolutely everything. And I'm there going, well, maybe not. But you advocate for what's called a subscription model in the book. Oh, yeah. And I was wondering if you could... I've got two questions on it. Like, what what would the case you'd make for that? And then what do you say to the sceptics that would argue, well, then you'd have, because the major argument normally against like a free market healthcare system is you'll have poor people who are wrapped in debt and won't be able to go and see like a doctor or anything. I was wondering what you make. So first of all, what's the case for it? And then what you make of that, what I think is a bit of a straw man, essentially criticism. Okay. Well, I, I, it's a it's a while since I wrote that this, so I might not be that articulate on it. But it's an interesting idea. And the first thing is there's this idea that if you look at say the record industry, or no, let's look at television. Um, there's a sort of cycle that or or, or, or that public. Let's 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 look at publishing. Let's look at newspapers. Um, if you look at the Times or the Telegraph, once upon a time before the internet, we paid for them. You, you went and bought your thing and you bought, and that was a successful business. Then the internet came along and 
they all started offering their, their services for free because they couldn't work out how to make money out of the internet. Internet. So there was this expectation that everything was free. And then as a result of their being free, all the newspapers nearly went bust. <laughs> mm. So the third stage is paid, free, bankruptcy. And then what saved them all was subscription. You know, people subscribe, whether it's via, you know, and so a lot of content creators on the internet have gone through this journey. Paid, free, crisis, subscription. Uh, TV and YouTube's gone some, through something similar. And, and um, so there's this idea that the government services are going through the same journey. So once upon a time, we would pay for the NH, this is before the NHS existed, we would pay for healthcare or you would pay for education. And then it became free and now it's in crisis. Mm. And the, the idea is perhaps the solution is subscription. And so, you know, you can get into arguments is everybody's de demanding different levels of healthcare from the NHS. And so you ask yourself, what is the responsibility of the NHS to provide? Is it emergency essential healthcare or is it Viagra? You know, should the NHS be providing Viagra at however much a Viagra pill costs or, or some, you know, I've read somewhere that I think you can get sex changes and certain vanity plastic surgery you can get on the NHS. Now, should, should those kind of things be free? Should the taxpayer have to pay for that kind of thing? And in my opinion, probably not. Um, so you decide, and now if you look at something like air travel, uh, the cost of a first class ticket on a plane is maybe four or five times the cost of a standard class ticket. Mm. And, but the air, it doesn't cost the airline four or five times more to provide the first class service. It just provides, uh, but the, you want the extra, you've got the money and you want the extra bit of pampering or the, the, the nice food or whatever it is. And so you pay the extra money. It only costs the airline a little bit more to deliver that much better service. So there's this idea that we, we all pay our taxes, whatever the level of taxes are. And you see exactly when you see pay your taxes, you see that you know, of the one pound I've paid in taxes, 20p has gone to the NHS and, and 20p has gone to education. And you see, I mean, you do see that already because they send you a pie chart, but you actually get, uh, that money goes into a wallet. And if then, and in exchange, you receive a basic level of essential service. And that basic level of essential service is clearly delineated you know for this level of service you will receive this level of care but if you want something extra that is beyond that level of care like you know if you rather if you want your own room in a hospital rather than being a ward or you want to be able to stay overnight rather than be sent home or whatever it is mm -hmm. then you can pay the extra subscription money and um get that extra level of care. Now that, that subscription money, that extra subscription money goes into the provider of that care and it, it, it 
it enables, in, like the airlines earn more off first class seats than they do second class seats, they can do the same with the subscription things, uh, the subscription revenues. And it enables, it's another way of funding public services by taking extra money, making sure that the basic level of care is provided, but, but enabling people, enabling extra more expensive services from those that can afford it. So it increases government revenue on one side and it improves service on the other because you can say, no, I've paid this extra thing. I demand this extra level of service. So some, some uh, power is handed back to the, um, to the customer, the, 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 the patient, whatever. So that's, that was the idea that I sort of proposed and I hope that makes that some kind of sense. By the way, I do think a lot of, I cut this chapter out of the book, but it's, we sing it like mad and it's accelerated because of COVID. I do think tech is slowly starting to replace government services and improve mm. on them. So for example, we have the internet, the most powerful learning tool ever invented in the history of man. You have to go, why do schools need to exist in their current form? And their current, you know, particularly with COVID, you've kind of gone, well, the schools have been rubbish anyway. And then you look at healthcare, all these new healthcare apps where they're using data and doing DNA testing, whatever it is. And you can see that you're the sort of person with your lifestyle and your genes, you're the sort of person that's gonna get Parkinson's in 25 years. So you need to change what you're doing now in order to stop you getting Parkinson's 25 years down the road. And that kind of prevention thing is ultimately much cheaper than treating the disease. Mm. Um, you see something like Uber, like to get an Uber in London over a short trip in London, two of you or three of you can get in the car and it works out cheaper than the three of you getting the tube. So, and, and once we go into driverless cars and all that, it's gonna get even cheaper, assuming it doesn't get taxed into oblivion. And so you have to say, well, um, you know, tech is improving on government transport systems. So you're seeing this gradual, and then at which point you go, well, I'm, everyone's using Uber anyway. So what's the point of there even being public transport? Uh, or everyone's using, um, you know, these new apps. So why do we need the, the Parkinson's department? Because nobody's getting Parkinson's anymore. Or do you see what I mean? So gradually mm, tech is yeah. replacing government services anyway. So hopefully that will enable governments to cut back their spending, but I'm not holding my breath because they'll just find other things to spend money. <laughs> I think that was a, I think we, that was a great kind of summary, summary of kind of what, where we can go. And so just as a final question, one of the questions we like to ask people is if you could pick three people who have like influenced your politics and your thinking, who would you choose and why? Satoshi Nakamoto. I'm gonna pick a guy called James Turk. Actually, forgets. Yeah, no. James Turk, who was a uh, um, wrote a, a great deal about gold, and I learned about money and money systems in my early years. So James Turk, and I can't decide whether to pick Nigel Farage or Douglas Carswell. I'm going to go with Doug. Um, both of them. I'm going to go with Douglas Carswell. Thanks for watching and listening. If you like the podcast. Or your politics junkie, or you just like my face, please go and hit the subscribe button to keep up to date with all new episodes. This is another in a series of podcasts by The Conversational Lemon Can I, called Can I Make a Point. We'll be releasing new episodes every Sunday morning at 10.
If there's things you want us to cover or try more of, let us know in the comments down below or get in touch via our Twitter at TC underscore Lemon. That's all for now, but you can head on over to theconversationlemon.com for more content. You can subscribe to our YouTube or our Patreon to access exclusive episodes and extra clips. But for now, it's goodbye from Danny and goodbye from me. Bye.